0: Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 290, Interview with Ferret Steinmetz. And now, constructed on a zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket
1: ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in (laughs) (laughs) Sci-Fi Publishing.
0: Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. Today, fittingly, I'm sitting on a patio recording this just outside Albuquerque, New Mexico, the setting of Breaking Bad. And today we are joined by Ferret Steinmetz to discuss primarily his debut novel, Flex, which many have described as Breaking Bad meets Jim Butcher, or Breaking Bad by way of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. If you're in discussion of magic systems, I think you're really going to enjoy our chat. Fair and I also spend a bit of time talking about the Sad Puppies and Hugo discussion a bit, and if you recall episode 289 that we had with Larry Correa and Brad Torgerson, he gets into the Vox Day controversy in, in particular. In fact, before the interview, Christy and I will provide some of our thoughts about episode 289 with Larry and Brad and talk about the Vox Day piece, as well as talking about commercial fiction in some areas where we think the Hugos actually are underserving genre. So before we get into that, and before I let this linger too long, we also want to congratulate Sean M. Again, that's Sean M. It wasn't Sean F. It wasn't a departing gift for our beloved Sean Farrell, but Sean M. He won the Brandon Sanderson Reckoners book giveaway. We want to thank all who entered and certainly look both online and listen for additional giveaways that we'll be promoting in the future. Well, this show's going to be a bit on the longer side, so let's jump into Christy and my sad puppies conversation and then our chat with Ferret Steinmetz. This is Brent Bone with Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, and Christy and I are here to speak about the interview we did earlier with Larry Korea and Brad Torgerson on the Sad Puppies campaign, and, and just thought we'd provide a, l- a few comments related to the interview and some ongoing discussions that we'll have on the Hugo Awards and the Sad Puppies controversy. So, Christy, I'm going to uh, throw it to you first for maybe some opening thoughts on some of the discussion we had and then, then offer some reaction on my, uh, on my part as well.
1: Yeah, no, I... You know it, it was great having them on. You sort of you know for the past three years, the whole sad puppies thing has been in the news on Twitter and Facebook. and I was glad that we finally had a chance to get them on the show and talk to them and you know see what see what they had to, you know hear what they had to say. It's, it's funny how that doesn't always happen with some of these controversial topics where you sort of have people throwing, you know, comments at each other on, or throwing comments out on, you know, Twitter, which is kind of like the bar you go to, to get really, really drunk and throw a few punches. (laughs) And I, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like the the past couple of years, that's what's been happening with the Hugo Awards is that it's a lot of, it's a lot of punches being thrown around. Anyway. I, I thought that the the one thing that really stood out to me that for me that sort of hit a note where I'm like, yeah, I'm nodding my head and I'm, I'm, I'm like, there's a point there has to do with the commercial fiction aspect Mm -hmm. when it comes to Hugo Awards. I, and it's, it's funny. So Guardians of the Galaxy, James Gunn, the director of, of Guardians of the Galaxy recently, I was actually, I've got this open on, on Nerdist right now. He was talking about the Oscars and, you know, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And uh, one of the things he said was that it, it just has to do with whether or not comic book fiction is, is or, you know, comic book uh, movies are are valid. And what he said was, you know, if you think people who make superhero movies are dumb, come out and say we're dumb. But if you, as an independent filmmaker or a serious filmmaker think you'd put more love into your characters than the russo brothers do captain america or joss whedon does the hulk or i do a talking raccoon you're simply mistaken Mm. and i I, so it's i i kind of feel like that's a similar it, it has to do with a similar topic you know it's i worry that with the Hugo Awards, and, and my favorite example is Ready Player One, in my mind, that was the piece of fiction that all of my friends who aren't writers was, that was the sci-fi piece that everyone read, that everyone, you know, uh, that resonated with everybody, yet it wasn't on the Hugo Award ballots, you know, it wasn't even a, a nominee, and that worries me in the grand scheme of things, because it's, well, it's it's a sci-fi community, it's fandom, at what point does the award lose relevancy? On the other hand, it's it, I've I've found great pieces of fiction from you know the Hugo Award winners and and nominations list that I never would have read otherwise. Like China Miéville is one, and another one's is Bach Galupi. I read them because they were on the Hugo nominations, and, or they they got Hugo nominations, and I don't know if I would have read them otherwise. So it's, what do you think?
0: I, uh, from a commercial fiction standpoint, it's it's interesting because you and I have not spoken really before getting on to have this conversation, but I pulled up the same blog from James Gunn and drew this very similar parallels from a commercial fiction standpoint and just had a certainly an appreciation for the sleight of hand that's required, the craft that's required from a quality standpoint to be able to produce something like guardians. And then even drew that parallel, you know, to some of the Jim butcher conversation that we had the other day and, and to say, how can you not appreciate? Because part of the argument that's anti sad puppies is around quality. Yes. And, there's a lot of a commercial fiction that's done with a significant degree of quality, and I certainly bought into that argument from the Sad uh, Sad Puppies campaign. Was that there needs to be better recognition? It needs to go beyond Doctor Who, which it, at this point, absolutely, doc, yeah, doc, Doctor Who's transcended and become commercial fiction. I'm sorry when you when you reach the front page of Entertainment Weekly. When you're on the cover of entertainment, Your commercial. You're, you're commercial fiction, right? Game of Game of Thrones is now clearly commercial fiction, but it didn't always start that way. And same with the same respect, I, there are also, from an appreciation of the Hugo Awards, there are probably things I wouldn't have picked up and read unless they had made the Hugo ballot. And I think one of those uh, authors would have been Joe Walton. Yeah. So... You know, among others, was uh, an absolute delight, and that was one of the most interesting arguments. Wh- whether you agree or don't agree, and that's the reason why I asked the question uh, the gentleman that I did around why do the Hugo's matter? Because you have so many other venues from award recognition standpoint. You have Goodreads that recognizes science fiction and fantasy anymore, and so mm-hmm. this argument of fandom. Is more now about are the is the Hugo's the quintessential label that needs to be applied for a piece of excellent science fiction and fantasy, or is it is it changed? Is it yeah. now the avant-garde label or the literary sci-fi yeah, and fantasy li- that's coming out exactly? If if the discussion in the narrative is going to be exactly is if, if the discussion in the narrative is going to be this is now the literary view of science fiction. And now they used a word I wasn't I bristled that a little bit when they discussed affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean it's an exploration in topics around that may not be mainstream.
1: And those are important. And and that's you know, that's sort of coming from that academic literary perspective. Those those topics and ideas are important. And I enjoy when I'm able to pick something up that is a little bit avant-garde and is good. You know, it's sometimes hard to find that kind of stuff, and the Hugo's are, are you know, have traditionally been been great at giving those types of works a bit of, you know, uh, I, I I guess a bit of a kick to make people aware of it, which is which is great. But at the same time, and this was something I, I we didn't get a chance to talk about as much, and I would have liked to have, which is the idea of. Of membership for WorldCon, mm-hmm. and rec- sort of that idea of you know recruiting more fans, which is something Sad Sad Puppies has has openly done, and a lot of authors do. But this idea of getting more fans to join WorldCon is that something that you know does it, it sort of as you're saying, like I mean, is it becoming more of a literary award and more of an academic award, or? Do they need to start branching out and getting more of the general population interested in the nominations and interested in in voting and interested in buying a membership? And that could change it. You know, that that could change the dynamic of the awards quite profoundly.
0: It it could. And it sounded as if that was Brad's aim. Brad's aim was, this has been the label for this award. And this is the hallmark. It's like the good uh, housekeeping seal of approval on a book, yeah. And that's been the label for the award. Where I think the argument could be, the the label's changed. It means something. It means something else. Yeah. And so you have that argument. I think that as we're continuing discussion, so one of the things I think listeners need to know is that we're going to have ongoing dialogue about this discussion with other authors and others involved in the community, both within some of our upcoming interviews. So one of the things that uh, will be part of my upcoming interview with Ferret Steinmetz is that he's been speaking via Twitter. I don't think he's been throwing punches, uh, via Twitter, <laughs> but he's been asking some really good questions. And as a marketing guy, so most people that have listened to the show know that I'm a marketing guy at heart is the sad puppies campaign well we had a very intelli- i thought relatively intelligent and fun conversation with those folks
1: yeah uh, absolutely
0: I, I i really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with them is ferret would surmise that they have a perception problem and so we're gonna talk about that when, when I talk to him and it, unfortunately it'll be after the the Hugo nominations are closed, but he's been arguing on Twitter that they because of the Vo- because of Vox Day, at least if I'm reading his tweets correctly, which is hard to do in 140 characters, right? But <laughs> he, he would argue that perception is reality and how this campaign would look significantly different had they not included included Vox Day and associated their brand.
1: He's and really we talked cool. about that a bit, too. Yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah, that's it's a it's a fascinating point. And it's it's sort of a it would have been it, it would be very interesting if you could see if, if we could, like, take another sort of, I don't know, alternate reality and see what that <laughs> would have looked like, because I, I I'm inclined to agree with them. That was a real, you know, in, in some ways that really threw fu- through, you know, that was throwing gasoline on fire. Yeah,
0: which Larry seem to have no qualms uh, about that. And it, you can argue or debate the merits of the decision-making there. But on one on one level as a marketing guy, that's one of the adages of, of marketing or PR is that perception is reality. Yeah. And from an association standpoint, I think that's one thing we're going to hear over and over again, that there's a significant brand problem when you're associating yourself with Someone that's perceived to be, because Larry, you know, went to bat for, for Vox around a little bit in that discussion, was perceived to be as a racist. So, yeah. it, you know, it's, it, boy, if any one of us had the superpower to get into the core of anyone's heart, that I, we might, you and I may need to collaborate on a story on that. If, that would be a fabulous superpower for one person to hold. If we could get to the core of anyone's heart and just figuring out if they're being a charlatan and a showman, or if they're if they're truly a racist. Yeah. Um, but I think that's some of the discussion we're going to have going forward, and it, it's uh, it's something that was intriguing to me, and I, I'm glad we asked that question as we as we had both Larry and Brad on the show.
1: No, I, I think, and it was an important question to address. It's also, again, on Twitter, you you see um, KT Bradford. I, I think I think Larry might have alluded to that to an article she put up or she had on, I think it was EXO Jane a few weeks back that had to do about challenging your, your reading, what, what types of works you were reading and, you know, not to read. I I think the title was not reading male cis, uh, cis authored works for, for a year. So it's interesting watching. You can argue that the title of that that article was a bit of clickbait, (laughs) you know, It, it, you know, even, even, you know, after you read the article too, like, I mean, the title was a bit of clickbait. So there's, I I think there's also some of that going on too, where there's, you, you have some clickbait coming up with some of these articles and, and people are jumping in and, and it's the, my, my bar analogy for my, my uh, dive bar analogy for Twitter again, coming up, but (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and some people may just be plain bored about this too so yeah <laughs> it's it's it, when people are offering a dissenting point of view just to be offering a, a dissenting point of view view and that's some of the feedback i've seen from some respected authors has been yawn yeah uh, you're part of the community great continue to fight with one another via twitter you're not making much of a difference can we get to the matter at hand can it's a sit- bit
1: yeah, yeah, it's, it's no, it, it, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it's a bit like South Park. It's kind of like arguing. It, it's kind of like taking South Park, the TV series, to bat for saying, you know, like occasionally you'll have people say, oh, well, there's swearing, there's, there's um, you know, there's racism, there's this, there's that, the other thing. It's South Park. Come on.
0: <laughs> and that's a little bit what the blogosphere and Twitter seemed like to me because I've even had moments where I'm like can we get to the matter at hand? Can we save Borderlands bookstore in in Oakland? Can we just save the discussion? <laughs> because yeah. we, while you guys are all over here, uh, having that proverbial fist fight, we have places of discourse that are, that are closing that need yeah. to be saved. So, yeah, well, you and yeah. I'll continue to talk about it because they, uh, others, I think, are in the, in the industry, are continuing to talk about it. But and it was great. It was great to have them on the show. The one thing I I will one hundred percent agree with 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 Brad, and it wasn't a comment that he made during our discussion, but it was the the comment he made in our earlier interview with him was a comment he had said about what his uh, wife had made about his spouse had made about social media. And it was social media is a great place to talk past one another. And yeah. so I think the the opportunity you and I have is we can actually have, a real dialogue and ask questions and clarify and and as close as we can without having a superpower to get into the heart of everyone's soul we can at least ask them honest questions so yep. I, I'm glad we're able to do that
1: here's, here's one last thing that should have mentioned earlier but the one thing that irritates me about the Hugo awards so you've got TV series on there, you've got fanzines on there, you've got books on there, you've got TV shows, movies, like all, all those types of things on there, no video games. Mm. This, it's, you know, and again, this, this comes up with the whole validity thing and, you know, whether or not it's representative. I'd love to see a video game category, but that's another discussion.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, from a media consumption standpoint, that's something that, you and I've spoken about doing with the show mm-hmm. is including, and that's actually the one category I probably could get my twelve year old son to speak to, although he it's funny earlier today, I told him he has for me a lifetime of free books. yeah, but he has to earn his video games. yeah, so maybe you can talk me off the ledge on that one at some
1: point. I like don't that. know. i I kind of <laughs> feel like i I feel like some of the best storytelling in sci-fi is actually being, or you know, over the past 10, 15 years, some of the best is being done in video games. You know, the writing is great, and you can do different things in games. You know, Mass Effect is is a brilliant example of storytelling. i trying to think of a few others as well. Uh, for Fantasy, Dragon Age is another one that gets brought up quite a bit. The Last of Us, like, I mean, you're seeing some really good storytelling coming out. And it's mixing. You kind of got film mixed in with... Um, mixed in with with writing mixed in with an interactive experience you know it's it it really is a new media form so i i yeah i don't know i i i think mass effect is one and I, I, a lot of people agree with me a lot of people will disagree with me but i think mass effect is one of the best pieces of science fiction that's come out in you know in the last 10-15 years
0: I think you and I need to do or figure out a way to have a series of discussions on that topic. And I, yeah. think, it, I think it transcends video games. I think it's multimedia.
1: It really is. Yeah.
0: It, it's, yeah. It's video games being a component of that. But I actually sat in on a tremendous discussion with Kish Johnson at the Campbell Conference a couple of years ago where the entire day, lo- well, not the entire day long discussion, but a good portion of of the day-long discussion talked about form and how form influenced the story and how form beyond prose was a viable form, a story that needed to be taken seriously. And I I think, you know, I'm pretty close to, uh, in proximity anyway, to Kish. That'd be something to be great to get her on the show as well as some other luminaries that either within the gaming industry or even mm. within the fiction industry because you have you have folks like Kish that are that are fans of multimedia that would probably yeah. be willing to have this conversation
1: yeah, no, I, I think I think that's a show on the horizon for sure, or, at least or a couple of shows. Yeah, yeah a, c-
0: a couple, probably. couple of shows. Yep. So, any anything else from our commentary? We'll, you and I can check in and provide a, f- a little bit more commentary as we have additional guests that are coming up. We'll, we'll at least have two more guests uh, I know that are coming up where we'll be discussing the sad puppies topic. Absolutely. All right. Well, Christy, have a have a great afternoon and hit into that ginger beer.
1: You bet, Brent. (laughs) You too.
0: (laughs) All right. Until next time, everyone. Take care. My next guest is a firm believer in the apply butt to chair, then fingers to keyboard philosophy. And this has served him well the last several years. He was one of the inaugural guests when I first joined Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. And in turn, he may not remember this, but I was his inaugural Kindle autograph request, which was the subject of much envy at a world fantasy. So I'm so glad to have him on. He's been a fixture in short short fiction the last five years, and I'm excited to chat with him about his debut novel, Flex, from Angry Robot Books. Ferret Steinmetz, welcome back to the show.
2: I am so pleased to be back, man. <laughs> you remember that? You remember that world fantasy? I do remember that because I was remembering like, who the heck would want my signal. Okay, fine. I'm happy. And then, you know, it's like, so that was awesome. Yeah. That thing, that
0: Kindle, by the way, has died. But, I, but I've kept it and hmm. flipped it over. And I'm actually going to donate it to About SF, which is tied to the University of Kansas. And they do a charity auction. And it's basically my first year. I probably have about 30 signatures on that thing. Mm -hmm. And it was my first year, year and a half of all the interviews I did and folks that I met through Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. So you'll be a a piece of a little charity auction.
2: That's good company, man. That is such good company. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. So well, it's great to have you on, and I, I'm just so excited for you with the launch of the novel and a lot of fun. I would, you know, there's been a lot of comparisons, and I hope it's not overdone to Breaking Bad. And I was a huge, a huge fan of the show. Are you? Have you been watching Saul?
2: Oh God, Better Call Saul is yeah. a miracle. You wouldn't <laughs> think that a spinoff would be so good, but oh my God, it is. It, it it is totally different from Breaking Bad, and yet it feels of a piece. So I I it's one of the few shows where I will make time with my wife and go, okay, we're watching it now. No, we're not TiVoing it. I have to see it now. <laughs> it,
0: it's truly must see TV, which is good. I was wondering whether you're able to fit it in, knowing how busy you've been with the book launch. So it's mm-hmm. it's good to, that you've been able to take a moment and enjoy enjoy something I know that that you had loved the original show, so I was hoping you were enjoying the spinoff as much. Well, yeah. let, let's get into that. I gave a little bit of a teaser of Flex. There, there's a little influence there, I know, but let's let's start with the book. Tell our Tell our listeners a little bit about it.
2: Okay, well, the official description from Angry Robot is Jim Butcher meets Breaking Bad in a tale of a desperate father who will do anything to save his daughter, except it's weirder than that. <laughs> the the the, gest- the gestation of this is at one point I was role-playing, which is a little bit embarrassing, but, you know, I do that. And somebody joked about making drugs, and I'm like, no way, man, if I'm going to make drugs, I'm going to make magical drugs. And then I paused, and my writer brain just lit up like Broadway. And I'm like, wait, how would you make magical drugs? So I really started <laughs> to think about that and got into it. And basically what... Flex is getting a lot of really positive reviews right now, for which I'm really happy because it's my first novel. It took me like 30 years to learn how to write a novel to sell it well enough. I've been writing novels since I was 15. I'm 45 now. It's my debut author. And I'm glad if it's going to take me that long to write something that people seem to like it thus far. But anyway, the the central conceit of Flex is that magic is created by obsession. And the standard example I've been using is that if you are a crazy cat lady, right, like you're that kind of woman who <laughs> hoards cats in your apartments until you show up on a reality show, there is a chance that you can fall through the event horizon and become a felomancer and start doing crazy cat lady magic. But there's two things that actually stop you from being like a really effective good wizard, which is one, by the time you become obsessed enough to actually do felomancy, all you care about is your cats. Like, your focus has been narrowly reduced... And suddenly all you care about is doing spells that protect your cats. And you know, you create cat centered pocket empires and just kind of go off the deep end.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I'm having visions. I'm having visions. I think it's of a Haynes commercial where the dude's wearing cats.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's not that far off. You know, I mean <laughs> You know, and so in the in the, the novel there are a lot of different kind of mancers. The lead character is Paul, he's a bureaucromancer. And he believes in the power of paperwork and can do paperwork-centered magic, which sounds really weird, and it kind of is. There's a video game mancer, and she does video game-centered magic and goes Grand Theft Auto on people. There are origami mancers, there are muscle mancers, there are death metal mancers. Basically, any hobby you have can feed into your obsession, but again, the magic you do is restricted by this thing that you are so obsessed with that you sort of became a maniac about it. And the flip side to that is that one of the other reasons that magic is uh, dangerous and actually is in fact illegal in the world of flex is because when you do magic, it turns out the universe went to a lot of time and trouble to create all these delicately balanced laws of physics (laughs) and really, really hates anybody who's bending them. So if you do any kind of magic, there is a magical backlash process called flux where uh, like a final destination style coincidences rain down on your head until you're either dead or you've burned off the bad luck so that's the pitch for the magic system the real actual story of it though because the book is more than a story is basically how Paul, he's a bureaucromancer he believes in the power of paperwork because he worked at a crappy insurance company and he was trying to fix other people's bad paperwork to get them the claims they desperately needed because Samaritan Mutual, the company he works for, is willing to deny anybody's claims at the drop of a hat and he's done enough work for people he stays late at the office like shoemaker's elves filling out other people's paperwork so that Samaritan Mutual cannot deny their claims and he has gone bull goose loony and now believes that basically paperwork is an instrument of justice he believes that you know he's like paperwork it brought Nixon down paperwork you know it's how you get banks to do laws and everything he's very very strongly believing that paperwork is justice and then his daughter gets burned horrifically in a fire and then it turns out that Samaritan Mutual, the cheap insurance company he works for, is not going to pay for his daughter's uh, reconstructive surgery. She's going to live, but she's going to be horrifically burned and look like you know basically a freak forever. And so he wants to use his bureaucracy to save her. But remember when I talked about that bad luck thing? <laughs> it's targeted. It's not like just bad luck rains around your head. It targets the things you love. If you are a Mancer, your mother tends to die. Your girlfriends and boyfriends tend to die. The bad luck goes into the things you fear losing most. And because he's new to this whole bureaucracy stick, the first time he tries to use his bureaucracy to save his daughter, he winds up hurting her more. And the novel becomes about his quest to master his powers. And the only way he can master his powers is by teaming up with the terrorist Manser who burned his daughter in the first place to make drugs. So that's the pitch.
0: All right. And there there are several things in that that we're going to explore a little bit further. The first of which, too, is Paul's background, while he works for the insurance agency, also has some other unique skills and experiences that play into the novel and also his position with the insurance agency that puts him in some unique positions as well. You mind? you mind speaking to those?
2: Yeah. One of the things that uh, happens in the world of flex is that basically Samarin Mutual is a tremendously cheap insurance company. <laughs> and basically they will deny a claim for any reason. They basically – you can get insurance from them. Don't expect to get a claim anytime soon. And one of the easiest ways they can do it is there is a clause in most insurance contracts called Acts of God and Magic. And basically, if unless you pay a significant premium, because magic is weird and scary and, as mentioned, illegal, and nobody can really figure out where it's going to come from or control it, if they can figure out that the accident you had was connected in any way to magic, they can deny your claim in one fell swoop. Paul started out as a cop, and he fell in love with the idea of magic and wound up chasing a mancer, an illustromancer, into an alleyway had a showdown with her and lost his right foot so basically Paul is really into magic he likes the idea of it he's so in love with it that basically he accidentally killed a mancer which has been eating into him all his life but as a result he is very aces at actually tracking down other magic users which is one of the reasons why he can track down the person who burned his daughter. so he has a, a vast skill set related to tracking down and finding magic which is a tremendously rare skill in this world you know, at one point it's just explicitly stated in the world that only about one out of every 100,000 people are obsessive enough to actually become a mancer. And of those people, most of them die to their flux pretty soon afterwards. Or their bad luck because they fear getting caught by the cops leads them to get caught by the cops and brainwashed and inducted into the military system as basically a bunch of brain bird magic users. Jesus, so yeah, Paul's got a lot of skills that are relevant to his quest right now. Uh, The one thing he does not have, because he is a bureaucromancer, is the ability to be any good in a fight whatsoever. (laughs) Because, you know, if you're looking to have somebody by your side when the bullets start flying, the guy who's really good at filling out paperwork is not the guy you really want to have protecting you.
0: Yeah, you know, as you're going through these obsessions, I'm sitting here conjuring a list in my head of obsessions and mancies that... That didn't make the cut. It'd be, yeah. it'd be interesting to hear from you. I, I'm i thinking of one already just based on his relationship and because the insurance companies seemed to have no problem even though they were cheap. Mm-hmm. They had no problem supplying a never-ending string of or boxes of donuts. So yeah. I, I'm surprised there wasn't Donut Mancy in, in uh- it. <laughs> yeah, I actually did
2: consider having that happen. At one
0: <laughs> so what? What other Mancy? What other mancies did you you consider? Because I was, you know, that's one of the things that's hard for a writer is you'll fall in love with an idea and just not want to to let go of it. You you become obsessive about the idea itself. What other What other
2: Mansys didn't make the cut for the book? Uh, well I put them all in the sequel which is coming out in October. So, <laughs> so what can we look forward to then? Well in in the sequel to uh, here I'll drop I'll I'll drop spoilers what the hell I don't care. There's an origami mancer. There is a bookie mancer who basically got obsessed with making sports bets and managed to do horrific things. There is a culino mancer who's somebody who's so obsessed with cooking her cooking became uh, a magic. And my favorite one of the main characters in Flux in The Flux, which is the sequel to Flex, is wait for it. He's a Fight Club Mancer.
0: Fight Club Mancer. He
2: Absolutely. watched the movie so many times that he became obsessed with Fight Club and he has Fight Club related powers. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Does he a bit? Well, I'm just I'm conjuring all sorts of Im- images tied to it. I'm thinking of the uh, discussion of all the retail catalogs and furniture outlogging. I w- I wonder if it's as much as the fighting ability as all the bipolar issues that were part of that part of that book as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's the split there's, p- personality issues.
2: I mean, I love I love Fight Club with an unholy amount, and I was so glad to find a way, an excuse to put in a bunch of. Fight Club things. I mean, he's a real character. And the one thing I want to stress about this, because the novel sounds goofy the way I'm talking about it to a certain extent, but one of the hallmarks of my fiction is that I take a ridiculous idea and but I put it in a world where the characters have to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there is a fight club omancer and everything like that. He really seriously believes in this stuff. He really seriously believes in trying to create a project mayhem in the city that he lives in. Uh, he really seriously believes in erasing his own identity in that Fight Club style so he can become somebody greater than the nebbish that he kind of is, but that takes a real serious psychological toll on his well-being. You know, It's not just about punching people in the face, although he does a lot of that. It's about trying to live the real world according to what happens in Fight Club, and if you watch what happens in Fight Club, it's not really a good way to live in any way whatsoever.
0: Well, and you even see that, and you see that in Flex, as you were talking about something that, on some level, even though we're having a bit of fun with this, right, and could be viewed as absurd, and I'm, I'm just enjoying talking to you and looking at the creative process as well. Mm-hmm. It's Paul very consciously is looking to use his Mancy to solve problems time and time again, and and he's he's pretty crafty. In the way he does that, and a lot of those things are grounded, and he's also very grounded in the repercussions that yeah. it could cause, particularly for his his daughter. And it's Alaya, correct? Alaya, yeah, Alaya, his daughter, who's yeah. been badly badly burned, and and that's where the stakes are for him, is because you know he's learning to, he's needing to learn how to control his Mancy in order to in order to get the get the reconstructive surgery that she needs. So the conceit itself is obviously very serious, even though even though I wanted to have a little fun with the cutting room floor.
2: No, no, and it's, so. it's absolutely fun. It's, it's one of those things where it's fun to talk about and it's fun to come up with, but one of the things that is a very serious thread throughout the entire book is that you don't get into Mancy if you're a well-balanced person. <laughs> there is, uh, you know, the, the the other main character in the book is called Valentine de Griz. And I love her. She, to me, is the breakout star of the book. She is a chubby, kinky, female, very unabashedly open about everything video game mancer. And she's the yin to Paul's yang because Paul is very much about, you know, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's and making sure that you're responsible. Whereas Valentine's like, yeah, put the cartridge in and just cause havoc. She's great. She's violent. She's open. She can do all the stuff that Paul can't. But at the same time, it's very clearly expressed that she's actually miserable, and one of the reasons that she's falling into video games so much is because her life is crappy. You know, she escapes into the world of Super Mario and Grand Theft Auto and all this stuff because, honestly, she has a power where if she uses it too much, it could kill everybody she loves. So she's slowly withdrawn from everybody, and one of the things that happens is that she meets up with Paul, and... She and Paul have to come to an agreement, and they team up, even though they're really not suited for each other, because Valentine sees this burnt child and goes, I was like that once, and wants to help her. And that's the that's
0: the initial connection between the two. Mm-hmm. She obviously feels this guilt and identifies with Elia on mm-hmm. some level, but that's just the initial that's just the initial connection to, to bring the two of them together. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about since we're, since we're here is Valentine and Paul and their relationship. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, as you were developing both of the characters, what about their partnership said, Oh yeah, this is going to work. And how, how do they help fulfill one another? Because you, you kind of talked about them being a, a yin and a yang, but w- what about, what about their characters help really support one another through through the novel?
2: When I when I wrote this novel, one of the things that I did was I mainlined of all things the movie of Fellowship of the Ring, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Which sounds weird, but one of the things I think the one of the reasons I think Lord of the Rings resonates as a movie is it takes these very disparate people and you watch them becoming friends on screen even though they irritate each other a hell of a lot. <laughs> And sure, maybe Peregrine's like knocking buckets into, you know, wells and causing like huge trolls to attack him. But Gandalf does feel an affection for him, even though he's still never changing from being a pain in the ass hobbit. And one of the things that I personally hate is a lot of the sitcoms you watch. If you watch, you know, sitcom television, it's like they'll put, you know, four or five personalities into uh, a, they'll lock him in a paint can and have them go against each other. But realistically, there's no reason why these people should be friends at all. Like, it's just an artificial thing to get as much laughs from people as possible. But the only reason they're hanging around each other is because the script says they have to. Mm -hmm. And what I really wanted to do with Flex when I was writing it is I wanted to have two personalities who had no reason to be together except, A, they're both in the world where the thing they love most is legal. And B, they both have this kid who they want to help. And how would these people manage to work and somehow become friends throughout all this, even though their friendship is extremely dangerous? Because, again, if you're friends with somebody and you have that magical backlash, if you care for them, it can go and hurt them as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So having two, having two mansers teaming up side by side is almost unheard of in this world because it's basically just magnifying the chance that something's going to go wrong. There's a real serious stake and yet they somehow manage to work it out because they wind up in a weird way if not understanding each other they come to agreements with each other yeah they, they
0: understand the how the total of their relationship works even though at some level they at one point i remember even in the book somebody makes a a reference to them having feelings for one another and they they immediately and vehemently object to any sort of to any sort of real feelings, right? And just for because of the repercussions you discussed.
2: Well, it's it's not even that. To me, you know, and again, this is, is mild spoilers for the book, but you know, you're, you're listening here, you know, you're into science fiction. I sent the book to to Anne Lecky, author of Ancillary Justice, who I loved, I love that book. And actually, Anne published my Nebula nominated story, uh Sourcrow Station and Giganotosaurus. So we've known each other for a while. And I sent it to her, and she. one of the things that she said back is, I love the fact that you have a very clearly platonic friendship at the heart of this. And then she immediately backpedaled, and she goes, I don't know if you plan to have them hook up in the sequels. Maybe you do. <laughs> but, you know, there's not enough just exploration of friendship. If you have two people with compatible genitals in a book, at some point they're going to hook up. And I think that's a tremendous waste. I mean, I, I, I disagree with that whole... Harry Potter, like, if you have a man and a woman, they have to want to have sex at some point. Mm -hmm. Paul and Valentine are utterly not suited for each other. Valentine is way too kinky. She wants to do stuff that Paul would never even think about, like, he would just get nauseous even contemplating. And Paul, I mean, Valentine is a messy person who, like, leaves condoms all over the house. They're not compatible in any way, and yet... They're good at compensating for each other's weaknesses.
0: Yeah, and have a mutu- and develop a mutual respect for one another. Clearly, yeah. And I, I just enjoyed that relationship immensely between them because you could see these completely dissimilar characters, and, and even as they get to about the midpoint of the book, you, you just know that there's this tremendous respect where one would would lay down his or her life for the other. So mm-hmm. and that was that was a, a one of the more enjoyable components of the book, and I I'm not sure I quite put my finger on it like Anne did, but uh, maybe maybe subconsciously that's what was working back there.
2: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: while we're talking about Anne, in earlier you had mentioned some of the serious and interesting praise you've received for the book, and I know, knowing how humble you are, that that may be praise that you're is unwanted on some level right now, but.
2: I think by humble you mean completely neurotic. But, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I really enjoyed was some of Anne's advanced praise. and and I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, there was some advanced praise I'm gonna to mention to listeners here because if they if they're not reading it somewhere else, they should should hear it. And one of my personal favorites was for Anne, where she said, uh, do you like drugs? Read this book. <laughs> I'm I'm truncating that a little bit, and then and you've already talked about the magic system a little bit, but you also received some advanced praise from Ken Liu that talked about the magic system, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit. You've talked about the flex and the flux components of the magic system, but I want to ask you how you ended up deriving the actual manufacturer of the Mancy into an actual drug form and how you went about working working that out, maybe maybe walking through that for our listeners a little bit.
2: Well, it's, it's mostly a case of, of challenges because the, the problem with most magic is that it sucks from a, a plot standpoint, okay? And if you're not careful with your magic, what you wind up with is Dr. Strange, what I call Dr. Strange syndrome. And if someone by in your audience by chance is not familiar with Dr. Strange... He's a Marvel Comics character. He is the Sorcerer Supreme, mm-hmm. and he has all these crazy spells. But the problem is, you don't know what these spells can do. He's like by the Eye of Agamotto, and you know that it involves seeing through something, but you don't know what the limits are. And the limits very much, very you know, very very much depending on who's writing it. So what happens in every single Doctor Strange comic is that whenever he's in danger, he has to stop and go, "Oh my God." It's this extradimensional deity. I don't have a spell to cast that. Or, you know, this magician, he's casting the orbs of Ostrain. I, I can't counter that. And there's this actual moment where, like, you don't actually have an idea of how much danger Doctor Strange is in because you don't know what his capabilities are. So when I started writing Flex, I'm like, I want to write a magic system where I can put Paul in a situation and you can have an immediate idea of how much danger he's in Because you understand the magic system well enough to know if this is going to cost him or not.
0: Yeah, and what his limitations are.
2: Right. And when it came to actually brewing magical drugs, which was one of the uh, inspirations for this, the first thing I thought about is, well, okay, what do magical drugs do? And what do magical drugs do that other drugs can't do? Because, you know, it's like you could do like a Philip K. Dick, like, oh, it gives you hallucinations, but that's regular drugs anyway. (laughs) And I, I started thinking about Harry Potter, and I think it's in book five where he finds the the Felis Felicitas uh, potion, I'm mispronouncing mm-hmm. it horribly, the luck potion. Mm-hmm. And I, I read that, and I'm like, why would anybody in this world do anything but through that potion? Like, seriously, like, it gives you immense luck. There's no drawback to it. It's clearly like there's no restricted substances because they're having a bunch of high school kids make it in their class. You know, like, why wouldn't you just make this all the time and be the luckiest person in the world? You know, and and plus, you know, the thing is, if you you could bootstrap this by like, you know, hey, I'm going to drink a little bit of this and then brew a big shit ton of this potion. You know, you could make a a huge amount of this potion and just bootstrap that. So I thought, okay, if you get all this luck, it's got a backlash on you at some point. What would happen if you had a drug that gave you tremendous powers of luck, but then at the end of it, you kind of had to pay that off? And I'm like, that's a really good situation because you could immediately see why the government would make that illegal because in the opening chapter of the book deals with a kid overdosing on flex and when the odds strike back on him like just a gas main thanks to unbelievable odds explodes underneath him and sets a whole apartment on fire. So that happened and then I thought well if they're brewing drugs there's got to be a reason why magicians can't just brew infinite amounts of drugs. Like There's got to be some choke point and some danger in doing it. And so I thought, okay, you've got to have, like, a substance which is hard to get, because that's pretty much the canonical aspect of drugs. Like, you know, you need a certain amount to make it. So I'd said, okay, hematite. I like the sound of it. We'll have them have to have hematite, which is a restricted substance in this world. And then I had the process of brewing drugs be a fantastically dangerous process. So, yeah, there there was a lot of thought going into it. But basically it was, what's going to make things really interesting for characters and give them a lot of challenges just in making everyday drugs.
0: Yeah, and raising the stakes and making sure that they're earning the outcome, the rewarding outcome that's, that's supposed to be there. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about that for you personally, because I think you've been the reverse of your own magic system. So? I think you you ended up doling out a lot of flux before you ended up getting your flex, right? So, from a career standpoint,
2: uh, which, yeah,
0: <laughs> which is which is well well documented. And then I, you know, you've been doing well for several years with shorts and have Nebula nomination. And but even though I I know the long form for you has been elusive. So, w- what challenges? presented itself for you in, in writing in writing Flex?
2: Oh my god. The, the, the interesting thing is, is, you know, basically I started writing books at the age of 15. And I'm 45 now, and my novel dropped two days ago. So I have spent 30 years clawing desperately at the walls of publishing. And the thing is, I wasn't very good at it. I mean, one of the reasons Flex is about obsession is I am obsessed. You know, I've written seven novels that did not sell before this. So clearly I kept at it despite the fact that I wasn't getting any positive feedback. And then in 2008, I went to the Clarion Writers Workshop, which is a six-week writer intensive where they taught me exactly how much I had to learn. And then a year later, I went to the Viable Paradise Workshop uh, in 2009. I can't remember who my classmates were there.
0: <laughs> uh, now, have no idea who they are.
2: None. Not none. you. No. <laughs> <laughs> Which which helped me to learn even further, and ever since then, I've, I've gotten I've gotten a handle on writing to the point where I'm decent at it. But Flex was an interesting challenge because I'd written a lot of books, and in each of the books that I'd written beforehand, I'd had some quote unquote commercial element that I put in. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, oh well, this is sell. I'm going to put this in here, and you know, I'd done all that, and finally, Flex was just born out of despair. I'm like, I like this idea. I'm going to write this. I hope it sells. It's as good as I can make it. But, I mean, like, it's a really weird novel. You mentioned Donuts. I've had people say, this is the Donut novel. Because I reference Dunkin' Donuts like a million times in it. Because I'm obsessed with Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Like, Valentine is a kinky, you know, chubby girl because that's the kind of woman that i like seeing you know my wife is you know this wonderful you know she's quote-unquote overweight even though she runs triathlons she's smart she's confident in herself and i never see that reflected in fiction so i put that in there and basically everything you're seeing in flex is in some way a reflection of my personality where i just sort of abandoned all hope and said screw it i'm writing a book and i hope people come to the water that i'm, I'm providing them of course that's the one that sells so <laughs>
0: Of course, the one where you put all of you into it, and that's that's the one that uh, the one that works out. And I've truly enjoyed all of you in the in the nerdery. It's an ode in a lot of ways to to nerdery in there, particularly the video game aspects. And it's not just the I think you you said Grand Theft Auto, but mm. Valentine has a little diversity in her gaming. There's several Mario references in there that my son would love, although. There are a lot of other things that he's not quite ready to read in this bo- in this novel. I don't want to have to ex- explain some of the lube things oh, with okay. him just just yet. They're fair.
2: I will but. tell you that my eleven year old goddaughter is you know just finished it today, and that's wonderful and it's horrifying at the same time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's almost there. I think when I when he's about thirteen or fourteen, another year or two, I'll let him. I'll let him read it so
2: <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's the weird thing like my my I think he's 13 year old godson is also reading it I'm like oh God kid that, there's so much like there's violence and kinky sex in there and it's not explicitly kinky but it is very kinky so yeah
0: you you handle it pretty nicely where it's there's a nod and if you're if you're an adult you you know what's happening <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, let's we're we're talking about folks doing a reading and finishing this book. And one of the coolest things I saw on your blog before we got to chatting actually, it was a couple nights ago. I was reading it was that I saw that Dirge Mac Dirge magazine is doing a flex read along and I I don't know if this interview will drop in time for folks to join it, but how did how did that come about? Was that I somebody you? I wish there was knew, a
2: better or? story, and I, I'm just telling you that uh, Angry Robot arranged it. Oh, they did. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like a, one of the, one of the weird things about me and my current place is like I'm a blogger who punches way above his weight in fiction. You know, like I've been writing about polyamory and my own life story for years, so I have a blog with a fair amount of readers on it. But I didn't have a novel before this, so one of the things that has benefited me from this novel is that I have so many. I I hate to call them fans because that makes them sound sycophantic. But I have a lot of people who've been invested in my journey. And so when Flex came out, they all kind of bought it like sight unseen. Fortunately, they seem to like it. And it also enables me to like, you know, know a lot of people like you who are like, oh, hey, Ferret, do you want to come on my podcast? Because I've been around for so many years. But there's also the fact that Angry Robot's publicity department is... Top notch. They know how to get people uh talking about a book. And in this case though, I I would like to take credit. This is all Carolyn Lamb and Mike Underwood, who are just brilliant people in their own right who've uh, set this up for me. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, from a marketing standpoint, I thought it was it was brilliant. It, and I was glad I read it on your blog. I, I said, What a cool concept. To me it was a little bit like Joe Walton's, you know, rereads, you mm-hmm. know, where she's where she's going at she's going through it, but here now you have it on a first blush. So I was like, okay, very cool, and you know, I may be, I may be stuck under a rock somewhere, that, and maybe this isn't a new concept, but you know, it's the first time I had seen it, and I, and it made me wonder how that came about, and then also, what else are you doing to promote the book?
2: A ton of blog tours, you know, I'm talking with with pretty much everyone that I can at this point, and as many podcasts as I can get. I mean, not not that you are one of many, because you know, I, I don't know if people would know this, but. You know, Adventures was one of the first podcasts that had me on, and it was tremendously wonderful to have people discussing my stuff. (laughs) So I love this podcast, you know, more than any of the others. Don't tell them I said that. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, we only have a few of the others that probably listen to us. You know, it's only a little competitive intelligence that's done on on us, so you don't have to worry about that. Your secrets generally safe safe with me so we're well, very special oh, oh, <laughs> thank you and you're special to me and i would have had you on even though i even though i love you ferret i would have had you on anyway because you had me at breaking bad and magic yeah i
2: sorry yeah, it's, it's, it's a good pitch it's a good pitch it, and again again somebody in the angry robot marketing department came up with that i'm like i will take that even if my current favorite was from somebody who reviewed the book and said it wasn't breaking bad means jim butcher but it's breaking bad by way of scott pilgrim. Yes, I saw that
0: and I I thought that was an awesome description as well. That yeah. was a nice that was a nice pitch as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the valentine component I could see, I definitely see the scott pilgrim. Mm-hmm. So, you're also going to be traveling the country a little bit i think to promote the to promote the book where where can folks if they want to see you live and in person where can they get the the fair at u.s tour
2: well i'm going to be appearing on i think it's the 21st the 20th i'll be appearing in seattle university bookstore uh on the 21st i'll be at in other words in portland oregon then the week after that, I will be in San Diego at Mysterious Galaxy, which is where I went to Clarence. That's really awesome going back there.
0: That's very cool.
2: And then in the happiest moment of the tour, uh, I will be finishing up on April 4th at Borderlands Books in San Francisco, which is great because they ran into financial problems, and I thought they were going to be closed, and they're open so I can actually go there and do a reading assigning signing at a legendary place.
0: Isn't that, isn't that brilliant? that the, is. That whole subscription model mm-hmm. went through or the spon- or the sponsor model went through. <laughs> I and I'm wondering that's something I probably want to talk about on the show at some point is the independent bookstore and and how that sponsor mo- sponsorship model might might help save some independent bookstores that, well, that, the, the, That's that's awesome. the
2: interesting thing is I know I'm going to talk about it when I get there. 'cause I'm really big on Borderlands. I generally hate the idea of like, oh, we're running a st- you know, we're running a crappy store. Just give us excess money so we can stay open. Which is what you see a lot of bad bookstores doing. But the trick with Borderlands books is they've been so good for so long that I am not paying extra to keep them open be- out of pity. I am paying extra to keep them open because they are such a premium service that it would leave a gap in my life were they to leave. And there were several
0: hundred people that felt the same way.
2: Yeah. And, you know, they're not paying that money to keep this bookstore open because they feel sorry for it. They're paying money to keep this bookstore open because it's one of the best science fiction bookstores in the country. And it would be a great loss to San Francisco if it actually left somewhere. Which is not to say that I wouldn't feel the same about Mysterious Galaxy or any number of other fine bookstores across America. But Borderlands Books is the first one that's actually just people have thrown open their arms and said, we need you in our lives.
0: Yeah. yeah. Before we leave the topic, uh, because you mentioned the flux is being booked yeah. too, so are we committing trilogy or this is a uh, two books here with
2: it's, with it, flux and flux? It's a two book contract, and if it does well enough, they may pick me up for a third okay. or more or more. You know. Yeah, or more. So, so right right now, I'm in this sort of weird nebulous position because I'm writing one book. But I've got it plotted out enough that most of my plot bunny, like, you know, the part of my writer brain that's always going on in the background, doesn't have to think about that book. All I have to do is write the prose to get me to the next plot point. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, well, how would book three go? And like, I'm just batting it away like it's mosquitoes flying around. I'm like, you don't have a contract. Don't waste money on that. (laughs)
0: There's There's always Kickstarter, man. So uh, he, no! <laughs> there's always Kickstarter and book three's there. I think people after I, I think people will want to see it no matter what's decided by a publisher so
2: yeah, I can hope I can hope you know I mean it, it's been doing pretty well the first week, I think, but it's my first book and I have no idea how any of this works. So take that with a grain of salt. All right,
0: All right. You know. well very good. well before before we I got a couple more questions for you and and one is I saw a tweet from you. The other yeah. day, and y- you and I talked about this. We were, we had Larry Coria and Brad Torgerson on the show, just preceding you to talk about the Sad Puppies campaign. And mm-hmm. tweeters came by my feed, and I and it struck me, and I saved it, I favorited it because it struck a chord, and wanted to ask you about it. And it, the Sad Puppies campaign's been discussed ad nauseum in genre, and you're... Post was positing how the campaign would be viewed how it would be viewed if it hadn't included Vox Day. And I, I was just curious what what you meant by the tweet. Because you know, it's hard to get full context into 140 characters. But it but it piqued my interest. And I, yes. I could have we could have chatted about it on Twitter, but it's much more entertaining to, to do it where we're recorded.
2: Oh sure. Let's <laughs> let's see if you can get me to put my foot in my mouth. You know, I'm gonna find <laughs> No, I mean the the thing about the Sad Puppies campaign, and if if you're not familiar with the the Sad Puppies campaign, it, what, did it start last year? or Was it the year before? I can't remember. This is year three. This is year three. Year three. Okay, so basically they had they had a big hubbub where they tried to a bunch of conservative writers said, "Hey, we're not being represented enough in the Hugo Awards," and tried to form a voting block because all you have to do to vote for Hugo to nominate is to pay like a $50 entry fee or something like that. And they they went out to their conservative friends and their fans and said, hey, pay the money and nominate this block of writers. Okay? And to give you the full disclosure, I am pretty obviously clearly far left. If you follow my Twitter at all, and if so, God have mercy on your soul. You know, I talk about polyamory. I talk about left-wing politics. I talk about all this stuff all the time. But at my heart, I'm kind of a centrist. And, you know, I'm friends with Brad Torgerson on Facebook. I think he's a good writer. Actually, I'm reading his book, The Chaplain's War, right now. Mm -hmm. He sent me a copy of it, and I'm five chapters in, and it's really, really quite gripping. But that said, I think he's wrong on just about every major topic he talks about. (laughs) But the local hubbub in the science fiction community is K. Tempest Bradford wrote an essay... Basically challenging everyone, I dare you not to read, what was it, white, cis male, male. heterosexual writers for a year. Which, you know, basically abandoned people like me and Neil Gaiman, and instead read people by, you know, women artists, and Asian artists, and black artists, and transgender artists, and so forth. Which is basically Tempest saying, you know, hey, these people are underread. I want to make a campaign so you people, you know, you people read the kind of books that I think don't get enough play in the world. To my mind, there's nothing wrong with a bunch of conservative people doing basically the same thing and saying, we think we're underrepresented in the genre, and you need to go out and read more of our style of books. There's nothing wrong with that. I have some problems with them trying to hijack the Hugo Awards, but people have been gaming the Hugo Awards for years. This is just an explicit method of doing so. <laughs> at least but, they're above board
0: about it, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't. You know, it's not like hidden log rolling where you've got writers who are getting other writers' friends of theirs to vote for them. I mean, it's out in the open. You know it's happening. That said, while I don't object to it in principle, I'm amazed at how thoroughly they shot themselves in the foot by making a couple of really Awful and stupid and short-sighted marketing decisions. Because one of the first things they did is they tried to get Fox Day nominated. Fox Day is a racist piece of crap. Which is not necessarily a killing blow to a writer if he's really good as a writer. But the work that they had nominated for the Hugos was a novella in the category I got nominated for. So I'm, it was a novelette. It was in the category I got nominated for. So I'm a little pissy about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I read about half of it. And it was turgid and terrible. And it was just plain bad writing. And I don't think anybody who was serious about like actually nominating good works would have nominated that act at all. And in fact, the fact that it came... In fifth place, below no vote, should tell you the quality of that story. And then there's the fact that they nominated Dan Wells, who I'm friends with on Twitter. We chat a lot. I don't know whether he considers me a friend, but we certainly go back and forth. And I'm led to believe that Dan Wells was not entirely comfortable about being brought on board this thing. So
0: when was Dan brought on? I, I haven't looked at all the slates. I, could, I don't know if it was this it year. Was,
2: it was the same. It was the same year as Vox Day.
0: Oh, it was the same year as Vox Day.
2: OK, right. OK, right. And, Dan, and Dan's work was good because I'm a big fan of Dan. Sure. Uh, he blurbed my book and I was so thrilled because I'm a big fan of I am not a serial killer. His John Cleaver thing. They're filming a movie for it right now. He posted a picture. No, uh, somebody posted a picture of him with Christopher Lloyd today from Back to the Future, mm-hmm. and I just about squeed for him. I'm like, he's living the future. <laughs> but that said, what I'm fascinated by, the sad puppy sleep, is they took something and they're like, you know, you know, hey, we want to show you that conservatives can and what the next word in that should be, should have been, would have been, right well? And as it is, they shot themselves in the foot by saying, conservatives can gather a bunch of arbitrary idiotic people to nominate any dumb thing that they want and i often wonder what would have happened if they'd actually gone out of their way to nominate not just conservative authors but conservative authors who were really good with
0: quality your your arguments based on qual well quality but also the vox day being maybe their approach the first couple times around because they obviously didn't reach out to dan probably before putting him on the slate
2: yeah i don't have any insider knowledge on that i've never talked about it with dan but yeah I'm I'm led to believe that he was not as thrilled by that as he should have been. And the thing is that some of them can write. I mean, uh, that sounds horrible, some of them. But, you know, like I said, I'm reading Brad's book. It's good. I've read some of Brad's other work. He's a good writer. I disagree with him politically on just about every topic. But if you're asking me to say, hey, can you nominate a work? Brad's not a bad guy to nominate. But when you put Brad in the same hopper with Vox Day, and a very substandard piece of writing— you sent a message that this is not about the quality of the writing, and as a writer, I feel you should be a little ashamed about that.
0: Well, let me ask you a, a quick follow up question to that. Then, sure. so if they if they had acknowledged that maybe they made missteps the mm-hmm. first couple rounds, do you think it's too late to put the genie in the bo- back in the bottle?
2: I, I honestly do think it is. Simply because that should have been something you should have been thinking about from day one. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like a publisher saying, oh, we're going to publish, you know, authors who are conservative or we're going to publish authors who are, you know, pick your political stripe, libertarian authors. And the first three books that they publish are terrible. If you're not smart enough to know that nominating really good works to support your cause is your number one priority – then I don't think you can necessarily fix that by streamlining it over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, which is not to say there can't be another effort that does it, but I think this brand is irrevocably, irre- 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 is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Yay! <laughs> like, like every person who reads a lot, there are tons of words that I know how to read but not pronounce. Or
0: so. write and not pronounce. You and me yeah. both. You and me both.
2: Yeah. And I didn't realize I didn't know how to pronounce that one until I was halfway through the word. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think they really did tarnish their brand. And that's not to say that they couldn't come up with another campaign to do it. And, and you know, again, let me just reemphasize. It's not that I think that conservative writers are uh, misrepresented in the genre. Because The Sad Puppies has this bizarre divided voice. And it's like, we're persecuted. Nobody ever hears us. Look at all of our best-selling authors. <laughs> And it's like, okay, you have a lot of best-selling authors. Clearly, you're being listened to. What you're being angered is the people you want to aren't taking you seriously, but you don't get to make that call.
0: Yeah, and that's a question I ask them: is you know, if they clearly they have best-selling authors, and there's other venues for acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. So we even debated: do the do the Hugo's even matter? Like, if right. they feel, why why go after the Hugo's if you feel like that's become some sort of avant-garde left from an ideology standpoint that's where the voting block always is there's many other places to go to receive that acknowledgement that that your craft is worthwhile besides your pocketbook even
2: yeah i mean that's the thing because larry uh, you know larry korea uh, you know i have my book out it i hope it's doing well but he's going to outsell me like 5 to 1 i'm almost guaranteed And, you know, frankly, if it came down to a choice of, yeah, you know, my novel sold like 2,000 copies, but it won every single, you know, award, or my novel's a mass market bestseller and I'm raking enough bucks to pay my household rent, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to be cheesy and choose the money. (laughs) It's nice to have awards, but, you know, unless I can cook hot dogs on them or something like that, I'm not necessarily sure they're the best thing to have.
0: You should send that suggestion in to the the Hugo. (laughs) Yeah. I only want to be able to cook hot dogs on this thing.
2: Well, it's funny because a couple years ago, I got into a discussion with a friend of mine who'd been nominated for an Emmy. And we got into an intense discussion that lasted literally the whole convention weekend. Like, you know, when you just meet somebody at a convention and every time you're hanging around, you just have the same conversation, but there's more people in there and more people giving feedback. And we tried to determine which of the major awards would be best as a murder weapon <laughs> and we ultimately decided that the emmy was the best for finesse because it's got all those sharp pointy bits it's it like does. a woman <laughs> holding a globe and you could be like the assassin just nick somebody's jugular and, and take him out but if you want to go with blood force then the hugo is this gigantic heavy bludgeoning weapon and the greatest thing was two months ago i was at confusion and i was sitting next to john scalzi and we were discussing his Hugo because it got delayed shifting uh, for several months. Mm-hmm. And I told him about this conversation we had. And he says, oh, yeah, everybody's had that conversation. <laughs> it's part of the rite of passage, huh? Yeah, apparently you, apparently, writers just get together and talk, hey, if I was going to murder somebody with your, your award, how would that go? Which should tell you a lot about writers that you don't want to know.
0: Yes criminal mi- criminal minds there was a reason why bear's favorite show was criminal minds
2: oh yes absolutely absolutely
0: and that that's all that's all you really need to know well we've had an excellent excellent chat across a number of different subjects and again i just want to congratulate you on the launch of flex and i hope you see much success from from the debut but before we sign off anything else you'd like to mention to our
2: listeners that i may have missed Please buy my book. <laughs> it's my—I'm a debut author. Do what you can to help me out. You don't even have to read it. Just you know, just put it on your shelf. That's all I'm asking.
0: Put it on your shelf and in the first three weeks, too, right?
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. The, the thing about it is that I love the cover of my book. So even if you don't like my book, you'll have a really pretty cover. So excellent, excellent.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking the time, man. It's always great to chat with you. And I will. Uh, can we set up a a, a date? For when the flux comes out you you come back and visit us
2: oh absolutely that's coming out in october really really soon so uh, yeah i will come back to talk about my fight club omancer in more explicit detail so. all
0: right and I, I i have a question for you already about dinner conversation around the most discussed mancy at dinner so oh, we'll God. i'll hold i'll hold on to that for our next conversation okay that seems awesome so. all right man thanks again
2: all right thanks
1: Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at Publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making
0: of this podcast.